Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for its power to call us into faith and its continual renewal power, Father, to make us more like Christ, to wash us by the water of the word, as you say in Peter's letter. We thank you, Father, that we have a a classroom to meet. We thank you that we have men and women who volunteer in many ways to ensure our comfort and our opportunity to be here every Wednesday. And, Father, for the work you've done through me to teach, I thank you for that as well. We ask, Father, that with all the work that's been done, the real work now would begin. And that is the work you do in our hearts. As we learn more about false teaching and as we learn more about men who come to disrupt, as we are reminded of the truth in the gospel itself, we pray, Father, you would keep those things on our minds as we confront men and women who may come into our life who seek to disrupt or who do not hold the truth. Let us find the right words, the loving way to protect the flock, even as we may try to influence them to know the truth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In all of Paul's letters in the church, there is none more passionate in defense of the gospel than the letter he wrote to the Galatians. Galatia is the name of not a city, but a region. And that region is present-day southern Turkey, what was called Asia Minor in Paul's day. It's the place Paul traveled during all three of his missionary journeys. In fact, you can't move from Judea into what is present-day Eastern or Western Europe without passing through the place that was called Galatia. So when he headed to Greece or Rome, he had to pass through this region. Among some of the cities that Paul visited during his missionary journeys that were located in Galatia were Antioch, Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and there were others. Some of these names you'll recognize from the book of Acts. Paul probably wrote this letter shortly after his first missionary journey and likely just after the Council of Jerusalem, which occurred in A.D. 49. That would make this one of Paul's earliest letters. And that meeting, the Council of Jerusalem that I'm speaking of, that was a meeting in Jerusalem between Peter and Paul and a few other leaders in the early church to resolve disputes over how the Jewish church would welcome in and incorporate Gentile believers, how the two could coexist. In the earliest days of the church, the church was largely Jewish, if not exclusively so, And as a result, it still held on to its segregated view of Jews were the chosen and Gentiles were not. But after Paul began his ministry and the church quickly began to take on Gentile believers, that reached a point of crisis for Peter and some of the other apostles in Jerusalem who had yet to get over that issue and to understand that God intended to welcome Gentiles into the church. So that friction led to this meeting which we call the Council of Jerusalem, in which, as a result, the apostles became of one mind, that it was apparent God was bringing repentance to Gentiles as he was already to the Jew, and therefore you had to integrate these two. They were, in fact, God's people as well as the Jews. So they came to some compromise on some of the behaviors that they would insist Gentiles refrained from, because if not, they would have been too offensive to the Jew and they never could have found common ground or harmony. And that experience, the Council of Jerusalem, will be a very formative one in what you're going to read in the letter of the region of Galatia. It was an important moment in church history, and it's also important to this letter, particularly chapter 2. So we'll do that as we move through the letter. Now, after each of the missionary journeys Paul took through this region, he would inevitably return either to his home base in Antioch, Syria, which is not the same as Antioch in Galatia, 
he would return to Antioch, Syria, or he might on occasion go down to Jerusalem, inevitably to leave again. Well, after the first missionary journey, and after he had returned to Antioch, he probably wrote this letter back to the region in Galatia where he had just been, and where he had founded these first Greek churches. And while he's there, while he's in Antioch, he must have heard through some means that there were men moving through the region that he had just been in, teaching Christians wrong things, spreading false teaching. We call these men Judaizers, the ones that are in view in this letter. And we call them that because the core of their message was that a Gentile must become a Jew first before they can be saved by the Messiah. Furthermore, they said that even after one had become a Christ follower, a Gentile must thereafter continue to observe the law of Moses. So they were Judaizing or they were making Jewish Gentile believers. That's similar in a way to what we studied under 2nd John, 3rd John and Jude, which were about Gnostics in those cases, in the case of those letters. Uh, The Gnostics had a teaching with potential to disrupt the church as well and to undermine the spreading of the gospel as well. They had a different approach. They had a different angle, but their effect was the same. It was distorting the gospel and unnerving or distort or disturbing believers concerning what they could be assured of, what they could rest in. In the case of the Gnostics, it was that you had to have some higher knowledge or you couldn't be saved. In the case of the Judaizers, it was that you had to have a Jewish cultural lifestyle according to the law or you could not be saved. So naturally, Paul is just as concerned for his young children in the faith as John was in his letters or Jude was in his. And so he has to respond to their teaching and he has to try to help buck up the churches he's founded in Galatia so that they would understand the truth. Galatians as a letter is a very simple letter for the very reasons I just mentioned. It has a very simple focus, although very important one. Its focus is to defend the true gospel of grace, pure and simple. But it can be broken into three specific goals to address that fundamental issue. And the goals are this. First, Paul has to defend his authority. Because if you are a Christian in Galatia, the issue comes down to this. Do you believe Paul Or do you believe the Judaizers? So Paul makes an effort in this letter to substantiate his authority as an apostle and therefore that the teaching he delivers is straight from God to them. Secondly, he's defending salvation by grace through faith alone. The principle of salvation coming to us by God's grace through faith alone. Thirdly, He's writing to encourage the Galatian believers to stand firm in the truth that he had delivered to them when he was there and not to waver and not to give a hearing to these false teachers. Let's go into the first chapter, verses one through five. And like any letter, it has a salutation that opens it. And so we'll see the beginning of that salutation. Verses one through five. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. All right, right away in the salutation, you see the three themes. Let's start with what a salutation is, just to set ground here. Letters have salutations. In Paul's day, this is a very 
conventional Greek kind of salutation. Letters in the day always had the same beginning pattern. Ours do, by the way, as well. We typically start letters with dear so-and-so. If it's a formal business letter, it might have a block above that has the address of the sender and a block below that that has the address of the receiver. You, You get my point, right? We even have style guides that explain how business letters should look and the like. Well, there was a form for letters in Greek society in Paul's day. And in Greek society, a letter would begin not with dear so-and-so or to whom it may concern, but it would begin first with a statement of the writer's identity. And then it would follow with a statement of the audience's identity, that is, who it's written to. And then finally, it would have a statement of greeting. Sometimes it's nothing more than the word greeting. And other times it's more extended, as you see here. So it's who it's from, who it's to, and then a greeting. Paul says, he is Paul the Apostle. In this statement, Paul begins to introduce the first of those three goals that I said you would find in the letter. That is, substantiating his apostolic authority. Most of his letters begin this way, by the way. If you go looking through all of Paul's letters, it's very common for him to start his letters with a statement of apostleship, of confirming who he was in the sense that he was an apostle and that he was appointed by Christ. And there's a good reason why Paul often began his letters this way. No apostle saw his authority question more than Paul did. The 12 apostles were unique in that they had served Christ while he was in the flesh and received their office as he stood with them before he died. Paul never had that privilege. And furthermore, Paul was well known as that man who persecuted the church during its early years. In fact, he was there when the first Christian martyr fell at his feet. So Paul's adversaries took every opportunity to cast doubt on his authority to teach on the basis of his history and on the fact that his commissioning came in such an unorthodox way. And then lastly, Paul's teaching on the meaning of the gospel itself, his actual content of what he said, the fundamental doctrines of the faith. So much of what Paul wrote was so far beyond anything the other apostles were writing. Even Peter himself acknowledged that. That caused others to question whether he was in line with the other apostles or if he was rogue and doing something on his own. That's still a common critique by biblical critics today that too much of Christianity is based on Paul's teaching and we all know Paul was just a man out for his own good, for his own name, for his own sake. That's an unfair and unbiblical critique, but it's out there. Paul was given knowledge to share with the church that no other apostle received, including those who accompanied Jesus. So his critics made a case from that, that his position of authority was one that he had took upon himself or that had been granted him by the other apostles because he was such a strong teacher. They decided to hand their authority over to Paul and let him take the hard work of walking around and preaching the gospel. And then his ideas being so different from everyone else's just added fuel to the fire. I love what Peter says, and we studied this a little at the conference. Peter says in Second Peter 3.15, he says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter says two things we need to remember. Peter says, yeah, Paul's stuff can be hard to understand, which reflects how much beyond The rest of the apostles, Paul's insight was according to what God gave him. But then secondly, Peter takes in the next breath and says, and what he had to offer other men distort just like they distort the rest of Scripture, which implies that Paul's writing was Scripture. Here's Peter writing in his own day while Peter and Paul are still alive, that what he knew was coming out this man's pen was Scripture. So Paul is no less 
an apostle, and certainly no less was his writing inspired, but in his day, his critics took every opportunity to do what they could in discrediting him. So Paul always began his letters by backing up his own authority. He took this extra effort to remind his audience that his apostleship was no less authentic than anyone else's. He said he was appointed to his position as an apostle by Christ, not by a man, he says. No one, make, no one came up to me and offered me the job. Christ made me one. By the way, that's how every apostle is made an apostle. That's why we cannot today call anyone an apostle. Even if they try to appropriate that title for themselves, tell them to get off their horse. They're not, a, they're not an apostle. I can call myself whatever I want, but it doesn't make me one. The criteria to be one is clearly spelled out in Scripture, that you must have been appointed by Christ in person and called by him through a personal appearing to be his apostle. The twelve received that before Jesus died. Paul received it after Jesus was resurrected. But in all cases, it must come that way. And with it came certain powers that demonstrated you had in fact been appointed. And those powers were unique to apostles, like raising men from the dead. Or as Peter did, announcing someone will die and they fall at his feet. Having his shadow cast down on someone and healing them as he walks by. That's not common gifts in the church. So those are ways in which God showed himself to be working through these men in unique ways. Paul says, that was me. I'm one of those. And then he goes on to say he was sent by God the Father and the Son with a message. That's what the word apostle means. One sent with a message. So he says, I was sent with a message to be delivered. So here's what he's saying, or suggesting anyway. If we accept that Paul was called by Jesus personally, if we accept that he was sent by God to bring a message, then we must by necessity also accept that his message is consistent with God's will. I suspect the book of Acts is in the canon largely to validate Paul's calling and his authority to teach. Because much in the same way that Jesus' ministry is explained and validated by the Gospels, I think Paul's ministry is explained and validated by the book of Acts, since he's the majority of it. Paul says after that in the salutation in verses 3 and 4, the defense of the Gospel of grace. He states that we are saved from our sins by Christ giving himself for us. And that grace, Paul says, is what gives us peace with God. It reconciles us with God. And lastly, he says that grace came as a matter of the will of God. This is the salvation Paul preaches all the time, everywhere he goes, in every letter, and in every church. Salvation is a matter of God's grace alone and nothing else. If someone comes along and claims that any work is required for our salvation, then they have changed the gospel. They have changed the message. And they've distorted the gospel. Men receive grace. Men receive peace. Men receive salvation. Men do not earn it. Men do not retain it. Men do not even ask for it. Paul says all of these things are the gospel. And then lastly, the third theme. Paul introduces his final theme that Christians are to stand firm in the peace that comes from the true gospel. Because in verses 4 and 5, he says the true gospel rescues us from the evil of this present age. It does so because as you receive the gospel, you're born again by the Spirit. That spiritual change separates you from the sin of the world, not from the sin of your own body, not yet, but it separates you from the sin of the world in that you are no longer part of the deadness of the world. You are no longer part of the ignorance of the world. You have been made alive again. You see things anew. The old is gone. New things have come. You were set apart from the evil of the world that is living around you. So in a spiritual sense, you were set apart, even as you still live amongst. 
Paul says you've been made to be rescued from the evil of the present age. And then secondly, we're set apart in our future destiny. And that's probably the thing we care most about, certainly. We are rescued from the judgment that the world will experience and we will not share in their fate. Now, consider this. If God's grace is all that is required to rescue you from the world around you, to separate you from the world around you now, and it's all that's required to separate you from the judgment to come, then what more is required than grace? What more do you need? It solves our problem now and it solves our problem in the future. What else is there? So that's Paul's point. The gospel of grace grants us everything we need for life, both now and to come. It is our source of sanctification as well as justification. Nothing else is required. So having reminded the church in his salutation of what it means to receive the gospel and who he is as the messenger, then, and this is easily the most abrupt of Paul's transitions in any of his letters, he moves from that nice salutation to throwing a cannonball across their bow. Verses 6 through 9, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Other than that, how are you doing? (laughs) Paul opens with a rebuke, clearly, and he asks, how have you departed so quickly from the truth I gave you? And he uses the word that we have translated amazed. You can also translate it marvel or wonder. Thalmazo in Greek. It is a word that represents, I cannot believe, is the way we would say it. I cannot believe you have already made this change. You've changed your view on the gospel so easily. Notice how he says they are deserting Christ. He says the church is deserting Christ. Now, Paul's going to speak in these terms on several occasions in this letter where he equates abandoning the gospel to abandoning Christ. They are abandoning the one who called them by grace. Now, where are they going to? Well, he says they're turning to a different gospel. Now, to be clear, Paul adds that a different gospel is really not a gospel at all. The word gospel in Greek means glad tidings. Or we would say good news. So Paul says a different gospel is not good news at all. In all our studies of false teaching, we've noted time and time again that false teachers always attack at the heart of the faith. They bring an alternate preaching concerning the gospel. That's their primary tactic. The true gospel comes through apostles and they always made that the center of their preaching. They came in preaching Christ and him crucified, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So it would make sense that as the enemy is trying to to disrupt and undermine that message, he goes to the heart of it. And so false teachers come and directly contradict that issue. Paul was preaching how to be saved from hell. What the false teachers will do is say, I know how to save you from poverty. Paul would come in and say, I'm here to repair a dead spirit through the power of the gospel. They say, I want to repair your physical bodies. So they move the object of the message from your soul and your salvation to something earthly and temporal. They call it a gospel in the sense that the word has no meaning. The false teachers came substituting a different outcome than the one and true outcome that the gospel offers. They weren't preaching that we become saved by faith in Christ 
and that the Lord may choose to bless us thereafter with wealth or health or whatever he may. They set aside the whole issue of sin and the need for eternal salvation and they move to other topics and they call it the gospel. They come preaching something that is appealing. Otherwise, you don't want it. And so what's appealing? Our human needs. If I promise to meet some immediate need that's on the top of your mind, that gets your attention. So the false gospels are about solving problems other than your eternal soul. And you get interested in that alternative before you realize what's behind it. Any message that substitutes for the true gospel is a fake gospel. So when we use the word gospel, what are we describing? Since I just raised the question myself, and can we all describe in a few sentences what the gospel really is? So that when the false one shows up, we know the difference. The gospel is something you have to get utterly clear in your mind before you understand what is not the gospel. Shouldn't every Christian be able to do this, by the way? Succinctly, without struggle, without doubt. If you can't, you're ripe for someone to convince you that the gospel is something other than what it truly is. Paul says here, I'm amazed at how quickly you've abandoned the gospel in Galatia. So if if a church taught by the lips of Paul can be turned aside in a short period of time later, it proves it's easy to succumb to a false message if you are not continually reminded of the truth. So knowing the gospel and having it drilled into us is utterly important. So in short, here's what the gospel is. The gospel is the message of salvation, the good news that we may be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. It is a message centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it comes in two distinct parts. First, the gospel message begins with repentance from dead works. Repentance is a work in the heart that God himself accomplishes. We do not do it to ourselves. It is accomplished in the hearts of those he saves. This godly repentance leads a person to turn away from the life they had been living apart from God, to turn away from the sin of unbelief, to acknowledge their need for salvation. Feeling that pull, that repentance, that need, that repentance, Paul says, is a product of God's will itself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. It has to be a repentance that is according to the will of God, which then can lead you to salvation. In contrast, he says, to the sorrow of the world, which just produces death. So the first part of any attempt to explain the gospel to someone is to explain that they have a need that they don't realize they have. One that they will recognize if and when God opens their heart to the repentance that the will of God can produce. Then secondly, the gospel proclaims we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We believe and we confess Jesus is Lord, that he died to pay the debt for our sin and he was resurrected to demonstrate his power over death. Elsewhere, Paul explains that this faith is also a product of God's grace. He says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So to put it simply, by God's grace we are brought to our knees in recognition of our sin before God, and by that same grace we are made to stand by faith in the righteousness of Christ. That's the true gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. You could say it in probably a hundred other ways, but that's the essence of it. Everything else you learn in God's word is connected in some way, fashion or form to furthering that message, to explaining it, to anticipating it, to calling us to live up to it. But everything in the Bible is about that message. 
Nothing in God's word changes that gospel or adds to it except to amplify it. We can't add, for example, water baptism. We can't add speaking in tongues. We can't add sinner's prayers. We can't add circumcision. We can't add ceremonies. We can't add denominational membership. Sometimes you'll see churches with signs that claim to teach the full gospel. This is a full gospel church. That's a warning sign. That's a warning sign. You're looking at a sign that says they are likely to be distorting the gospel. They are standing apart from the rest of Christendom by saying we have something more we found that you need that has to be in place so you don't have the full gospel. We can't look outside the Bible to find new information to complement or change that truth. We can't look backward into the Old Testament and find extra obligations to add to that truth. The Gnostics were looking outside the Bible. The Judaizers were looking inside the Bible in the Old Testament, but it's all the same. Trying to add or change what is simple but profound. We are saved because we come to a recognition of our need through the repentance God permits. And then we recognize that he has the solution to our need through the faith in Christ that he provides. Paul says that these churches in Galatia were being disturbed by men who wanted to distort the gospel. And in their particular way, as Judaizers, they wanted to amplify the Old Testament obligations and add them to the message of the gospel. Paul says they fully intended to change his message. They are intending to distort. This is not an accident. It's not a misunderstanding. They had this full intention. The word for distort literally means in Greek to twist or to turn. It's the word for turn in Greek. So they want to manipulate. They want to twist and turn the message into something that's not actually what it is. It's twisted up so that it can't be understood in the proper way. Remember, we've already learned in the last letters we studied that false teachers are unbelievers. So they do not even understand the very things they are presuming to teach, which explains why they mishandle it. So they claim that what Paul taught, this is what they were doing. They were going to Galatia and they were teaching these churches that what Paul had taught them was incomplete. Well, when the churches heard this message, it disturbed them for two reasons. First and foremost, it concerned them. What was the true gospel now? Do we really understand it? It left them doubting. First of all, were they saved? And if not, well, when do we know when we found the real thing? But secondly, it disturbed them concerning everything else Paul taught, because if Paul could not be trusted concerning the true gospel, then why would I care to anything he said? Is everything else he said wrong? And so everything Paul had left them with in the time he had founded the church, the man they had come to love as their father in the faith was now cast into a a light in which they weren't sure anymore about him. So Paul draws a really hard line here. That's why he makes such an abrupt movement from the salutation. He draws a really hard line between himself and. And these men, he says, if anyone offers you a different message than the one I gave you, even if it's an angel, he says they are to be accursed. The word accursed means damnable or damned, as in going to hell. You don't damn them. You and I can't make them go to hell. That's not his point. He's saying consider them as such. See them from that point of view. Understand who you're looking at. And don't take your teaching from that kind of a person. So he says, by definition, if someone holds to a different gospel, that one has been reserved for judgment. If you believe that the gospel is something other than the gospel, you're not a believer by definition. So he says, notice, even if it comes from an angelic being. So even if an angelic being shows up and tries to convince you that what you've received is not enough, that angelic being is to be considered a curse. Now, we have another word for accursed angels. Demons. 
An angel declaring a gospel other than the one Paul delivered is to be understood to be a demon, Paul says. And we know the Mormon faith, for example, began exactly that way with a man. And this is assuming his story is accurate at all. In what he says happened, he describes an angel of light. Be interesting if he had read that in the Bible first. He might have had a different story. He says an angel of light gave him additional texts that were long lost and changed the sense of what we thought Christianity was and what the church was. He fit perfectly what Paul just said. There are other traditions that rely on stories of angels or supernatural beings as the source of their faith, and we are expected to see them all in that same light. Why do others repeat stories with angels at the center of the story? Because they assume you're going to give extra credence to supernatural messengers. And the Bible says we are to give no credit to them if they change the gospel message. Let's not overlook Paul's choice to repeat this statement twice. I can't think of any other time Paul does this in any of his writings. I don't know of a single other time where he repeats himself so forcefully two verses back to back. Of all the things Paul said in all his letters in the New Testament, in the scriptures, he reserves his strongest statement to condemning those who preach false gospels. Now, the rest of the first chapter is devoted to Paul providing background on how he came to know the truth that he shared with the church. So he wants the church to have a full confidence that what they received from him the first time was coming from the authority of the Lord. And it's a fascinating story. Let's go to verses 10 through 12 as we begin the next section. Paul says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's just start there. It gets deeper. But first, Paul begins his defense with a simple question. What was the purpose I had in coming to preach to you in the first place? Did I come gaining your favor? Was that my intent? What Paul is arguing to the Galatians is that his motives in preaching were pure. And you can see the effect his preaching had on his own life. When men tell lies, if men do so for some motive of self-interest, you only tell a lie if it's necessary to gain something you can't gain with the truth. So these men had come into Galatia saying that Paul had come in with a gospel that was incomplete, which is to say they were claiming Paul came in with a lie. And Paul says, if I had come lying to the Galatians, to you, he asked, what possible motive would I have had in preaching a lie to you? Did it win the favor of men? When I came into town, did it win favor with men? When Paul taught throughout Galatia and Asia Minor, he was pursued by Jews and he was persecuted at every step. He was thrown out of synagogues. He was chased out of town by Roman soldiers and other Jewish leaders and the like. He was poorly clothed, hungry, thirsty, and treated like scum, according to 1 Corinthians 4. So he had zero incentive to lie because it certainly didn't make his life more profitable. It certainly didn't make his life easier. So if he had wanted to please men, he says, I wouldn't have been a bondservant of Christ. This is the last way that I could think of going around to please men. Since his preaching was not motivated by a desire to gain the favor of men, what was my motive? He says in verse 12, he heard the gospel preached to him, not by the mouth of a man, but by Jesus Christ himself. He says he did not receive the gospel preached to him by a man. But if you know the history of Paul, that should cause you to pause for a minute because you have the story of Stephen in Acts 7. And in Acts 7, Stephen is confronted by the Pharisees and by an angry Jewish mob claiming he's preaching heresy. And in his defense, Stephen 
presents that beautifully detailed summary of the entire Bible, really, the Old Testament, preaching all the way up to Christ's death. And he, he uses it to demonstrate God at work all the way to the point of Christ. He also uses it to convict the crowd to show they are exactly the hard-hearted unbelievers that the Bible said they would be. And at the end of his speech, he says this, and in Acts 7, 55 and 56, we read this at the end of his speech. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, at this point, because of what he says, the Jewish crowd is driven to attack and in anger they stone him to death, even as Stephen's praying for their forgiveness in the middle of the attack. All of this takes place with Pharisees standing and watching and one in particular. That Pharisee is described in verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So the man who would become the Apostle Paul is listening to the gospel preached by a man, Stephen. Paul nevertheless approves the stoning of Stephen. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, which is just a verse later, we read this in verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Paul heard the gospel preached by Stephen, but he didn't believe it. And in hearing it, it just caused Paul to have greater opposition to the message and to approve the stoning of Stephen. So Paul demonstrates in his own life, through that example, a spiritual truth concerning the gospel. Paul says he was preached the gospel by Christ, not by a man. And yet we know he heard the gospel spoken by Stephen. How do we reconcile those two? Well, there is a principle of grace that Paul is demonstrating here. Until the Lord determines to grant repentance and the gift of faith, the message of the gospel will literally bounce off hard hearts. It may even cause us, in the way it did for Paul, to react in anger or it can assault our pride or it can assault our self-righteousness when someone brings us the truth of the fact that apart from the work of God, we cannot believe in the gospel. But when the day comes for salvation, the call of the gospel will be met with repentance and will be met by faith according to the will of God. That is an offensive message to the pride of men. And we need to be offended so that we can eventually come to a humble appreciation of the truth. So now Paul says, I did not receive the gospel from a man. I received it from Christ. That doesn't mean he didn't hear it. He did hear it, but he didn't receive it. So now Paul gives his testimony of how he came to be an apostle. This is his first defense against his accusers. He'll make a second one in chapter 2. Verses 13 through 24. Let's just read the whole section. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia 
And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So there are several points in the Bible where Paul gives his personal testimony. Several in the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and now we have it here as well. None of those, though, give us the kind of detail we get here. This is probably one of the more richly detailed. Paul reminds the church first, you knew who I used to be, my former life, Saul, the Pharisee. He lived a life that says, according to the manner of Judaism. Notice Paul speaks of living a life in Judaism, but he speaks that way in the past tense. He no longer lives a life of Judaism, but he used to. He isn't saying he's no longer a Jew, but rather he's no longer living the life of Judaism. His point is that a true Jew moves to follow the Lord as the Lord reveals truth. So when the gospel was revealed in Jesus Christ, a true Jew leaves behind the old ways of Judaism to follow Christ. Being a good Jew is not following the law of Moses. Being a good Jew is following the Lord. And as long as the Lord has revealed Moses and only Moses, you follow Moses. When he reveals the next step, you follow the next step. And Jesus, of course, is the final revelation. So until Paul knew the truth, he was living according to this distorted and manufactured lifestyle called Judaism, which is not faith. Remember, Paul was an unbelieving Jew. He was simply Judaism in a human form. Consequently, he then goes about trying to destroy the very thing that was from God, even as he's supposed to be a man who followed God. And that, by the way, that's a classic state of mind for every zealous unbeliever. And there are a lot of zealous unbelievers, right? Religious unbelievers are convinced they have the truth, even as they oppose Christianity, which is the truth. Their zealousness often leads them to persecute Christians. And you see that today with Islam. You saw that with Catholics during the Reformation. You saw that with Roman pagans and Jews during Paul's day. There's always that religious zealousness that persecutes the true faith. So Paul's point in reminding the church of his former state, is to make clear that Paul is the last person on earth that you would think would have started to preach the gospel. Paul's former life is a testimony to the power of God. Because no one who knew the old Saul would ever imagine that he would come and be a strong advocate for the gospel that he hated so badly. It goes to the issue of credibility. Paul traded in a position of honor and power within the Jewish culture in order to preach for a message that he previously hated. That, again, it goes to the issue of credibility. Where does a man choose to do that for any self-interest? It would defy logic that he would go after that kind of a role. He had the best role in the world where he was. Notice in verse 14, Paul says his life in Judaism was going smashingly well. He was, he was advancing beyond his peers. He had everything to lose by turning his back on that. The very fact that he was selected to carry letters of arrest to Damascus when he was brought to faith on that road. The very fact that he was the one carrying the letters is a choice assignment. It reflects his prominence among the Pharisees that he had the privilege to go do that, to go arrest all of the Christians. So Paul has been telling the church in Galatia that the accusations coming from false teachers don't make sense on their face. Meanwhile, those false teachers have been arguing for more Judaism in the lives of Christians. So now Paul makes the point that he would have been the first person to advocate for Gentile Christians to become Jewish if a Jewish way of life was a necessity for believers, because he was the epitome of Jewish life. So he's making that point now, though he won't come to that point until later in the letter, but he's setting it up. So he says he advocated for ancestral traditions, 
which is, again, how Judaism is perceived. So he, Paul's past demonstrates the power of the gospel to change hearts and lives, and it validates his credibility. It also proves that no one is beyond God's reach. There's no human explanation for Paul's switch, none whatsoever. It was a miracle, but it's a miracle anytime somebody comes to faith. And at the same time, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, leaving us to conclude that salvation is a work of God alone. Now, it can be a concern for us that this is in God's hands and not our own, for it feels like it's distant and it feels like it's not going to happen, whereas for some reason we think if it was in our control or in our loving family members' control that we could just convince them and they could do what they felt they wanted to do. That somehow feels closer. The more you understand God and the Bible and the heart of men, that will flip. And you will start to take far more encouragement in the fact that God does this and that it does not depend on me and it does not depend on my relative or my friend to come to their senses. That God can take a man like Paul and flip him in a moment is proof that no one is beyond his reach. That is far more assurance and confidence for me than to think that I have to come up with the magic words or the right moment or that they have to be in the right state of mind or that... I have to have the perfect argument. You see the point? So my own personal background shares some of these elements. While I was never a zealous religious person in my prior days as an unbeliever, I was quick to defend my family tradition of Catholicism, especially if someone started to attack it from a Christian point of view. I didn't know what I was talking about, of course. I mean, I, I didn't even have the slightest clue about either Catholic tradition or the gospel. But it was a reaction to identity, to to defending my identity in, in who I thought I was. But a miracle of God comes along and my eyes are open to the gospel and he shows me the truth and you know the rest is history, as they say. So that is a reminder of that Paul is talking not only about himself, he's talking about every believer. Everyone's got a unique story. We don't all happen to have a road to Damascus moment, but we all have a moment. So the next part of Paul's story reflects that, how grace actually works, starting with the plan and the will of God to save a person. Paul says in verse 15, that the Lord had set Paul apart from his mother's womb. That does not mean he was a believer from his mother's womb. He's already said he wasn't. So what does it mean? The word set apart, aphorizo in Greek, it literally means to set a boundary around something, to mark out something. So Paul was marked out by God from birth to fill a certain role in God's providence. But in the course of time, that role became clear. And his change from unbeliever and persecutor to believer and to evangelist for the gospel is simply a matter of God's timing. But he was never in doubt in that respect. God had marked him out from his mother's womb. What Paul is saying is his mission to serve Christ was something God had assigned to Paul from the beginning of his life. In fact, we might even say, like was said to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, that the Lord had raised him up for this very purpose. Or as Jesus said to Nathanael in John's Gospel, John chapter 1, 47 and 48, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Which is a way of saying, I've known you long before you've known me. We have all been set apart, all believers have been set apart in this same way. Because Paul says so. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, Just as he chose us in him, God the Father chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So all believers, according to Scripture, are marked or called out for the faith that will come one day. We are predestined by God to be adopted by him through faith in Jesus. And these things happen, we're told, according to the will of God. That's what Paul is saying now to the church in Galatia. Paul says he was set apart and then on an appointed day he was called by grace and that call was the call of the gospel. And it's funny to me how this takes place in someone's life. I've seen this in many different ways, my own life included. And there's actually a fancy word for this process in which we're marked out and then a later day we're called and then we receive the gospel. Theologians say that's prevenient grace. Prevenient means before it's known, before you know it. And so people talk about God saved me from getting into some bad situations and kept me from dying that time I jumped in front of the bus and saved me from that overdose. And you see that God was ensuring someone that even in the worst of who they were, they were not going to be allowed to miss their appointed day. And that's prevenient grace. It's funny when you see this lived out in someone's life, meaning you see them before and after. And you can see the early signs of prevenient grace when you know looking back. You know, we preach the gospel to everyone in hope. But when it comes to root in someone's heart and then you look back on their life or they look back on their own life, you can see the markers in many cases, how God was moving them to the right place, to meet the right people, to be in the right place at the right time, to have those experiences that needed to line up so that when the gospel did show up, they were ready for it. That close friend that needed to drag them to a Wednesday night Bible study more than a few times before finally something fixed itself in their heart. So all of those things, all of those things are evidence that God has marked us out. It's not chance. It's not coincidence. It's not random. It's not by our will. Thankfully, it's by his will. So Paul was set apart and then appointed. And that call went deeper than simply a call to believe. His call, the call of the gospel, in Paul's case, was a call to go further and to serve God as an apostle. But Paul says that call came from none less than Jesus Christ himself. Notice Paul says in verse 15, he says, The Lord revealed the Son in Paul. Not to Paul, in Paul. The revelation of the truth of Christ, that revelation was made in his heart by the power of the Spirit. And it's not made as an argument from the outside, which we process from an intellectual point of view. And then after we process, it works its way down into our heart, into our spirit. It's exactly the opposite. It starts in the heart by the work of God in our spirit and then works its way outward. So salvation is an inside-out process, not an outside-in process process. So Paul says in verse 16 that God directed him to preach to Gentiles. And Luke describes Paul's commissioning by Christ this way in Acts 9:15. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen. There's that word again. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul's testimony just reflects what Luke says about that same moment. Paul was God's chosen instrument to preach to Gentiles and to suffer in the process. So Paul's life is unique, certainly, in numerous ways, but his experience of being called to faith and appointed to serve Christ is not unique. Every Christian is called to faith, so every Christian is to serve Christ. Paul says in Romans 12, we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. Paul's service was unique, yes, but service to God is not unique. So Paul had a particular testimony, he had a particular mission. But all Christians have the same calling into faith, and all Christians have a call to serve in some respects, so we all have a mission. So this is all just the basic gospel story for any of us. 
Now Paul turns to the question of his training and knowledge, which is really the issue here. How do you know what you know? Where did you get all of this knowledge, Paul? How do we know your gospel is the right gospel? Well, Paul begins at the end of verse 16 by saying he didn't immediately consult with men. Paul uses the phrase flesh and blood to refer to men, of course, but he says that to make it absolutely clear he didn't receive his training from any human being. He was traveling in North Judea, northern Judea, on the way to Damascus when he had his encounter with Christ where he was saved. He spends a short time with a man who God used to help get him through that recovery and disciple him into an understanding of who he was in Christ. And then he says his first destination was not to meet with the other apostles in Jerusalem. In fact, had he even tried to do that, I suspect they would have immediately rejected him. Instead, Paul says he goes to Arabia. Now, Arabia refers to that vast wilderness that is southeast of Israel, present day Saudi Arabia. So he went out into the desert. We don't know what he was doing in Arabia. He never tells us. But I think a reasonable assumption is he's being trained by the Lord. And we get a hint of that by something Paul explains to the church in Corinth when he writes in the second letter of Corinthians. And he speaks about himself here in the third person. So you have to sort of hear it knowing he's talking about himself. But he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. He says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. So speaking of himself, he says he went into the throne room of God. He doesn't know how he got there. He doesn't know if it was just in the spirit, so to speak, in a vision, or if he was physically transported there. He says, God knows, I don't know. All I know is I was in paradise and I heard things I can't even tell you. Paul, again, had a very unique experience. But yet again, it serves as a useful pattern for every believer. Well, how? Well, when a person comes to faith in Christ, what is the most important thing that Christian should do first in their walk as a new believer? The same thing Paul did. Go away and study the Bible. And by go away, I mean spend time learning the faith that has been given to you. Go to the Word of God. Build a solid foundation of doctrine and understanding. If we do that, we will be so much better prepared to serve Christ. If we neglect it, we're going to step out, usually in either arrogance or ignorance or both, and probably do more harm than good in the process. Paul said he was called by God and prepared by God and trained by God for the mission that God gave him. Now, why did Paul have that experience? When you consider that there were apostles... There were men he could have sought teaching from. Why was it necessary that Paul have this beginning in his ministry in which virtually no one else had any contact with him as he began to prepare for ministry? It goes to the issue of credibility again. He says, upon first returning to Damascus from Arabia, he ministers there for three years. So what he's saying is, I was doing the work of an apostle from the moment I came out of the desert. No one had trained me to begin that role. No one asked me to start. No one gave me permission to start. No human, that is. Then he says there came a point where he wanted to go to Jerusalem to meet Peter. And he says, notice, I went down there to become acquainted with Peter, not to be trained by Peter. I went down there just to get to know the guy. And I only spent 15 days there, which is hardly enough time for me to gain much experience with him or get much training. And while I'm there, the only other apostle I met was James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is not the apostle James of the 12. This is the... James, the brother of Jesus, from the letter in the New Testament. 
who was the leader of the church. His point is, I had virtually no exposure to any men who had learned what they knew from Christ. I gained everything personally from Christ. He's trying to minimize anything else in his life. From there, Paul says, I went directly into Asia Minor to preach. So as Paul, and that's where these churches are, Galatia. So as Paul entered into these regions, he was an unknown commodity. His only background was what people knew of him as Saul. So when they arrived, they assumed he's coming to kill us. And when he starts preaching the gospel, it's, it's like a total shock. And that was the point. His point here was to demonstrate that his ministry as an apostle was not the product of men, not even a product of other apostles. He is not a part of some vast conspiracy to deliver a lie to the churches in Galatia. He's not an apostle wannabe that left Jerusalem for better prospects in Asia Minor. He's not an apostle that simply substitutes for Peter or James. He was, the one, he was an apostle before he even met him. So his authority doesn't extend from them. He is a man called, trained, commissioned, directed by Christ. He's emphasizing his past as persecutor and as the man saved by Christ and trained and so on, so that this miraculous turnaround is a part of his storyline. Consider the encouragement it would have been if you were a young Christian in this persecuted church and you hear that the man who previously led that persecution is now an apostle, and even more encouraging than that fact alone, he came to that place not because some man threatened him or some man cajoled him or convinced him. God was able to step in and interrupt the course of events in this man's life and bring him to faith all by himself. From the beginning to the end, the the process was entirely in the hands of God. That is a tremendous encouragement to a church that's suffering persecution from all sides and knows itself to be weak and small in the face of that opposition. And now they see clearly Jesus is on our side and he can stop the worst of them when he's ready. In fact, he can go a step further. He can take the worst of them and make them the best of us. I mean, it's tremendous encouragement for a young church. They could see God at, at work caring for the church. So as we end with that, Paul will move in chapter two into the next defense of himself as an apostle. What he will do in chapter 2 is demonstrate that his authority is so independent of the other apostles and it comes directly from Christ in such indisputable fashion that he was actually correcting the other apostles in their own doctrine early in the church. And that's what we'll see in chapter 2. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the reminder of what is the gospel, how it comes, how we receive it, the power that it has to change lives. Thank you for the encouragement, Father, that each of us know Those people in our life who have not heard and believed yet the gospel, even if they've heard it presented by men. Father, we pray for the day that it will be presented to them by you and that you will speak to their heart as only you can. We pray for those that are on our hearts. We thank you that you would bring us the first chapter of Galatians as an encouragement to us to know that that day may still yet be out there for those people and for others that we know and others we'll meet in the future even. Continue, Father, to give us the hope that drives us forward to preach so that the day we choose to preach may be the day you choose to open a heart. Thank you, Father, as well, for the ministry of Paul, that you can take a man and let him become the one to cause martyrdom, to be the one who would persecute the church, so that when you bring that later day, it would be all the more powerful to the church. We thank you, Father, for that wisdom. Give us patience to understand it. And, Father, call us back next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.